All right, how are we doing at the 10.30 today in the house? We good? My name is Bryant, lead pastor. If you're brand new with us, I've been at our Wesley Chapel campus the last few weeks, three weeks, I guess. We are one church, two locations. And before we dive into where we're going to go today, I just want to bring your attention to this. Next week, I begin a brand new series at both campuses called Be Fearless. And so we're just going to take three weeks and talk about fear and anxiety and all of the things related to that and what the scripture has to say. And here's what I know, this is just one of those topics that affects everybody, even if you're like, I don't really struggle with fear, anxiety, my wife does, or um, the other way around, like you know somebody, right? And this maybe is a season and a culture we have more to fear than in, ever before. And so this is a great series to invite somebody. We say that about every series, but if you would grab an invite card, if you would go to our social media at Centerpoint FL and share it this week, um, just muster up and pray for 30 seconds of courage to ask a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, a friend, whether they know Jesus or not. Most of the stories of life change where people's like everything is altered happens because somebody had the courage to just invite. So I just want to encourage you on that. Bring somebody next week, be here, and hopefully this series is going to be really helpful for you or somebody that you know. But before I get there, I want to ask and launch what we're going to talk about today with a question. What makes Jesus mad? What makes Jesus mad? Like what makes Jesus angry? which is an emotion we don't associate with Jesus. We associate compassion with Jesus for good reason. That's all throughout the scriptures. But like, what makes Jesus angry? We don't associate that because most of our views of Jesus are jacked up, right? Like some of you have the long, feathered, blonde hair, olive-skinned Jesus who's petting a lamb with a staff in his hand and uh, Jesus was not white. That may rock your world for a little while, but he wasn't. Um, but all of our views of Jesus are just kind of off. A lot of us view Jesus as kind of soft. And then you look at the Gospels, which is the accounts of Jesus' life, and you see him overturning tables of the money changers in the temple. And then you see him getting in the face of religious leaders, calling them whitewashed tombs. Like, you guys are dead on the inside. You're a brood of vipers. I mean, he grew up, if you know anything about his life, watching rotting bodies on Roman crosses. Well, he wasn't soft. In fact, he was as militant as he was compassionate. And Jesus got angry, but he got angry for completely different reasons than most of us. Like, if you can think about the last time you were angry, I mean, like, where there's a little separation, not if you got angry on the way to church this morning, which that's some of your stories. But, like, the last time you got angry, if you were to think about it, what did you get angry about? You probably don't know because it was stupid, right? Like, because most of the time, I'll just speak for me, the things I get angry about are generally when I don't get my way. Even with my kids, like, when I tell my kids to do something and they don't, the thing that makes me angry is not, I told you to do that and I know best and this is going to be good for you, it's going to benefit your life. That's not why I get angry. I get angry because they didn't do what I wanted them to do. Right? Like, yeah, I, th if you would have done this, it would have helped you. It would have maybe kept you from something. It would have benefited you. But I'm really just ticked off because I'm not getting my way and you're not doing what I want you to do. That's why I get angry. That's why a lot of us get angry. Jesus got angry for completely different reasons. I, I love in Luke. Luke's a guy who sat down and tried to investigate and he pulled it off and interview eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. Like guys who were there. There was no separation. This was within a few years of of Jesus' whole um, life, and he sat down, and in Luke, he records the most powerful example of this, where out of Jesus' compassion, Jesus got angry. 
And he records um, this event where Jesus is at a dinner party, which ends up being the most awkward dinner party ever, where you see what I just described on full display. Now, I don't know if you've ever, anybody ever been to an awkward party or dinner party? Like, uh, many, I'll just admit, many times I'm the awkward guy at the dinner party. Um, Like, I can speak to everybody, but I can't really speak to anybody, if that makes sense. Like, get me one-on-one, and I just become a fool, just awkward. And so I'm at a table, and somebody starts talking about topics I don't know about, like NASCAR or fishing, and then I'm like, you know that, like, how do I get away from here and not be rude because I don't know what you're talking about? Um, Or there's the guy or the girl who's at, like, the party or the dinner party, and they begin to bring up subjects that are completely socially inappropriate for that context. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody's nodding your head. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Well, here's the crazy thing is Jesus is that guy. And in the story that Luke records, Jesus is the guy that deliberately brings up topics that are just off limits and deliberately creates an awkward social experience for a purpose. Like he's the guy at the table. The fascinating thing about this is Jesus is the invited guest. Like Jesus would invite you over to our home, and then Jesus just creates all kind of awkwardness. And in this awkward dinner party with Jesus, you get a little window into what I'm talking about. This, out of his compassion, there was some anger that went down at certain times. And, and his anger was directed toward things and about things that generally we, we don't tend to get angry about. And here's what Luke records in Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Here's the account of it all. And if you have the app, the CC app, you can download version um, and just follow along with that. And the NIV, there's also notes on that there if you want to fill, uh, follow along with some of that. So if you want to engage via the app, that's great, but it'll also be on the screen. Here's what Luke records. One Sabbath, which that's going to be important, When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched, which is a theme you find throughout the New Testament. Everybody's trying to watch Jesus, to trap Jesus, to hem him in, and ultimately bring him down. Verse 2, and there in front of him, Jesus and all of these religious guys, Jesus has been invited to their home for the dinner party. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And another way of saying this, and it kind of is a little more explicit in um, certain texts, is, is edema is another name for this. And it's this very painful disease where your body fills with fluid. So guys would have, their arms would like swell up or their legs. It was incredibly painful. In some cases, it could lead to death. It was awkward. So anywhere they were, they they tried to hide it as best they could. And so here's this guy at the table. And what you're going to find out in a second is what makes this so tension-filled is the fact that it's Sabbath. And so there Jesus is on the Sabbath. And Sabbath, as we're going to talk about in a second, meant no work. And the Pharisees kind of defined what that meant. And so even if this guy was available for medical treatment, they couldn't give him medical treatment because of their religious law. So instead, they'll just sit at the table and politely ignore him because that's what you do. That's the appropriate social thing to do. Unfortunately, Jesus was not socially um, kind of... Uh, giving in to protocol. So verse chapter, or uh, verse three, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, awkward conversation, number one, let me just ask you guys a question at the table. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And everybody knew the answer to this question already. And Jesus is now pointing at the guy that everybody is trying to not make eye contact with and ignore at the table. 
And here's what I'll try to explain in just a second, but let me start to tease it out a little bit, is that right here, Jesus begins to introduce a weird version of religion. A weird version of religion that honestly has followed us all the way through to present day. This was involved in ancient religion, but it's also found its way into a little bit of the Jesus movement. And their religion was basically this, that they were devoted to a system that they thought made them right with God while ignoring the people that God loves. And this is kind of theologically impossible, I'll say it anyway. In a sense, they prioritized God above what God prioritized. That they were able to create a system where me and God are good, and I can sit at the table and eat my pita bread, and I can ignore the guy, a form of it, at the table who's suffering, and I can hide behind my religious rules and not have to worry about it. Because Sabbath said, you cannot do any work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, conveniently enough, they set the rules. And so they did basically what a lot of us do with religion. They kind of created a little, a little list of what was easy for them to adhere to, and then they ignored everything else, and they judged people according to that standard. So they would excuse their own behavior, and they would judge everybody else's. And they would create Sabbath where, like, okay, the things that we do are not work, but the things that everybody else does is work, so you need to abide by our standards, which all of us probably at some level at some point in time have kind of played that game, right? Like you have a terrible day and you go off on somebody and you're like, I just had a bad day. They need therapy, right? Like we all create this weird, like we're okay, but like they need to be judged. So there Jesus is at the table and he motions to the guy, probably points to him and says, hey, hey, this guy right here that everybody, eye contact, that you know, right here, uh, Frank, like is it lawful to heal him on the Sabbath or not? And Jesus brings all of the attention to this guy that generally you would ignore. And he wanted an answer to the question with everybody sitting there. But they know what Jesus is up to, that Jesus in this moment is trying to trap them, which is appropriate because they were always trying to trap Jesus. And so they didn't want to give in and they didn't want to answer the question. So verse 4, they remained silent, not comfortably silent. Because all of their attention is on what they don't want their attention to be on. And here's, in essence, what Jesus is saying. Guys, 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 you, you are, you're the guys that everybody looks to. You are the religious leaders. You are in temple, like, every day. You, you probably have memorized a good portion of the Torah, their Old Testament document. I mean, you are the guys that everybody looks to as the religious authorities. What about the guy at the table? No, 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 it's great you go to the temple every day. What about the guy at the table? And at this moment, you see what you see throughout the, the accounts of Jesus' life is that Jesus was always uniquely aware and sensitive to suffering. And so taking hold of the man, this is Jesus, he, he healed him, which he wasn't supposed to do. That violated religious law as they defined it, and he sent him away. Because the guy at the table wasn't actually an invited guest. He wasn't going to stay for dinner. So Jesus did what the host should have done. And now everybody at the table is going, okay, change the subject, change the subject. Somebody change the subject, change the subject. It's awkward. Verse 2, then he asked them, probably with a smile, I, just, I have one other question, awkward conversation number two. If one of you has a son or an ox, which is a weird kind of, if you have a kid or if you have an ox, that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you, will you not immediately pull him out? <laughs> and this is a point where it gets super awkward. 
Because what Jesus is doing is unearthing all of their hypocrisy because here's, regardless of their religious rules, here's what all of these guys had done. If their ox fell into a pit, they were going to do whatever it took to rescue their ox on the Sabbath day. Or if their kid got in trouble, they were going to do whatever it took to rescue their kid on the Sabbath day. And at this moment, Jesus is very uncomfortably with his second question, pointing out their extreme hypocrisy. You guys hide behind your rules in order to ignore the name of the guy at the table, and yet you'll adjust them to fit your own needs. And at this point, here's the, really the question behind all of it that Jesus is asking. And if maybe you got bumped away from the church or you've experienced some, some crazy stuff in the name of Jesus or because of other Jesus followers, this is maybe some of what you have grappled with. Because here's really what Jesus is asking behind all of this. Is the law of God for the benefit of God or for the benefit of those God loves? Is the law of God for the benefit of God? Like, is the rules, the law, the Ten Commandments that you need to do this, you need to go in this direction, is that for the benefit of God? Or was that created for the benefit of those that God loves? Like, there's another part of the New Testament where Jesus says, listen, I didn't create man for the Sabbath. I created Sabbath for man. Like, it's like me walking into my house with toys everywhere going, babe, we need to, we need to have kids so they can pick up these toys right? You're, you're not going to do that. What, what is the law for? Is the law for the benefit of God or is the law for the benefit of those that God loves? That is an extraordinarily important question. And they know the answer to the question, but they can't answer it because they know. They know what Jesus is up to. They know that they really don't have any viable answer to this, but they can't give an answer and give in because they know where Jesus is leading them. And so verse 6, they had nothing to say. Like, really? Here's what's really behind this, if I can just go off for one second and I'll come back and land this plane. Here's really what's behind all of this. Here's Jesus' point. When our interpretation of the scripture conflicts with the intent of the author of scripture, you have the wrong interpretation. And this isn't that the scripture is not in the inspired, infallible word of God. I'm just telling you, you are interpreting it wrong. If you ever find yourself in a place where you can justify, you can excuse, you can work around, you can get by, you can pervert, you can figuratively be at the table and ignore the guy sitting to your left and feel okay about it and feel like you are okay with God, then you have made a conflict between the interpretation and the intent, and you have the wrong interpretation. And that's what these guys are bumping into. You're like, okay, why was the Sabbath created? Why do we have it? Why should we abide by it? What was it really created for? Why do we even have the law? When Jesus says, go this way and do this or avoid this, what is the purpose of all that? Is it really for God? Or is it for other people to the right and to the left? And what Jesus' point is this, that the whole law pointed toward loving those who are made in God's image. That the whole entire law and what Jesus is bringing to planet earth is what he dropped the night before he was about to be persecuted when he said, let me boil it all down for you. I want you to love me and because of my love for you, that makes it possible for you to love me. And then out of you loving me, I want you to love other people around you. This is the whole law. This is the whole thing. The law is a means to an end to love people that God values, for you to be able to value what God ultimately values. And throughout the scripture, isn't it true? 
They talk about, God talks about through Jesus' value a lot. Talks about birds in Matthew 6. Like, like God clothes the birds and he feeds them. How much more does he care for you? How much more does he value you? I mean, birds are great, but come on. I hit one with my car the other week. Like, God values you a lot more than he does a bird. Like, he talks about sparrows. God, like, pays attention to sparrows and he, he knows every detail. How much more you and your life? And so here is Jesus. Feel the tension. He's at the table. He points to the guy that nobody else wants to recognize, that everybody wants to ignore. And his question is basically this, or his statement is basically, how do you treat people you don't know? How do you treat people who are nothing like you? How do you treat people where it is really, really easy to ignore? Because you cannot value me without valuing what I value. And if you want to know where you are with me, just look at where you are at with the other people at the table that you're sitting at. This last week, and I couldn't, I couldn't give this message without thinking about this because Luke 14 has just been rolling in my mind all week as I spent several days with my wife and, and a team over in Guatemala. And it was just absolutely heartbreaking slash hopeful slash inspiring. But I'll never forget going to a place called Patsazun and going into this little village, it's about 1,500 people, and this, this passage just came so alive to me as I was there, where these families have been completely forgotten. And by forgotten, I mean completely forgotten by, by the church as a whole, by the government, by other nearby towns and villages in those zones in Guatemala. And three years ago, when the, the ministry that we're partnering with and that we're going to continue to do more in the future, Redeemer's House. When they went in there three years ago and partnered with the health clinic and also sharing the good news of Jesus with these people, there was this huge map, which is red dots all over the map, that represented extreme poverty in this area. Two-year-olds and three-year-olds, it's heartbreaking to see them if they haven't gotten care because they just, I have a three-year-old. And those three-year-olds in Potsazoon, there's no light in their eyes. They'll sit on a bed, and they won't jump around. They, their motor skills are underdeveloped. There's not a lot of joy. They kind of have a blank stare in their face because most of your development or capacity for development happens between one and two. And they're malnourished, and parents can't put them on the ground because of fear of what's going to happen. So motor skills don't develop, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. And going through that village and talking to Lee, who leads Redeemer's house, it's just like it, these people literally were forgotten, literally forgotten. We met one girl um, in this whole trip, Rosa Lynn, and she was extremely malnourished in her first um, even a few weeks of life, and there were several things that contributed to that to where she was not going to make it. One of the guys in the ministry said, I was holding her in my arms as an infant, and I thought she was going to die in my arms. And they took her out of the village, and they began to get her um, help. They began to nourish her to strength. It took a total of two years. Six weeks ago, she was placed back with her mom in this little kind of hut that we were able to visit. And she was bouncing around on the bed, and she's got this light on in her eyes. And just in, she looks like a normal three-year-old. But I, I viewed all of that as we walked through that city and, and saw this, this little boy by the name of Herson, and just the plight of these kids thinking, man, they have been completely forgotten, but not by God. And what was incredible is three years later through Redeemer's house, we looked at that same map and there's not a single red dot anywhere on that map. The extreme poverty has been completely eliminated from that area. And here's what I thought because I couldn't look into the eyes of those kids without seeing my kids. 
I saw this quote from Bill Hybels. I've never been eyeball to eyeball with someone who doesn't matter to God. And so Jesus is at the dinner table going, does anyone have the moral clarity to speak up for God's image bearer? Does anybody have the moral clarity to come to his defense? Does anybody have the moral clarity to notice? Does anybody have the moral clarity to value what I value? And all of the Pharisees know what they should say, but they can't say it. They can't do what they know out of their pride. And Jesus is just sitting there, and he's turning the tables, and everybody is awkwardly silent. And at this moment, Jesus becomes an angry, compassionate person. And here is really if I can put it in our language, here's really the underlying theme for them and for us, and it's this. Don't you dare use the law of God to mistreat the people God loves. Don't you dare create a list, a system, a vending machine. Uh, I'm going to read a little here and a combination of attendance here and go here and whatever, my little religious game, and then I'll go confess and whatever, and me and God are cool. Don't you dare use the law of God to mistreat the people that God loves. Because that is the purpose and the point of the law. And so at this point at the dinner party, Jesus was being watched by them, but now he is watching them and everyone is going, relieve the tension, relieve the tension, somebody change the subject. But when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable, awkward conversation number three. I got one more thing, guys, before we eat. Just, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for the person more distinguished than you may have been invited If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say, give this man your seat. And then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, take the lowest place. Go sit in the kitchen. So that when you, your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of your fellow guests. Jesus is making the same point, just kind of different topic, is you guys, you you do not value what I value. Your seating chart is all jacked up because you don't value the way I value. You value different people differently. You value some people more than others, and you think you can ignore suffering. You can compete with status or for status, and you can be cool with God. You can literally come to the table after attending temple and memorizing your verses and coming out of some religious activity and you can ignore the guy sitting to your left and it doesn't bother you in the least and you think you're good with God. And so, verse 11, he summarizes it this way, for everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled and he who humbles himself is going to be exalted. I.e., just side note, it's better to do it yourself than have it done for you. And then Jesus said to his host, and everybody's going, okay, is he done? Is he done? Is he done? No more advice. No more advice. I got one more thing of advice, awkward conversation. Number four, and then I'll be done. One more thing. When you give a luncheon or dinner, just a little advice, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. And what he's not saying is, that means I don't have to invite my mother-in-law to Thanksgiving? And I have a verse, babe, I have a verse, like I can't because it's God's will. It's Luke 14, 12, we can't invite your mother. What he's saying is, I want you to value what I value, which means there needs to be some some parts and areas of your life where you serve other people who can't do anything to serve you back simply because you value them the way I value them. 
as somebody who is made in the image of God. Because if, if you're just always trying to serve and do whatever you're doing to get reciprocated, then they may invite you back, and that, that's, that'll be your repayment. But verse 13, when you give a banquet, invite the poor. Invite the crippled. I love this. We have no idea how shocking this is. The Pharisees didn't believe that crippled or maimed people could reflect the holiness of God. And Jesus in this moment is changing everything. No, 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 they do because they're made in my image and they're valued by me. And so invite them, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the suffering. And isn't it true as you read this, everybody's on Jesus' side? Like, yes, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you, you know, I don't know if he's Savior, uh, Messiah, I don't know about all that yet. But even in this moment, you're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That, that's what it's about. Everybody is on Jesus' side. Even if you don't believe in Jesus and you feel that emotion, here's the good news. In that moment, Jesus agrees with you. But all of us, regardless of background, what we believe, where we're coming from, all of us agree with Jesus. But don't, don't get too excited. Because I'm telling you, Jesus' version of religion is terribly uncomfortable. Not just for first century, but for all centuries. Because here's the thing for all of us, and, and I'm in this. Jesus' version of religion takes away all of our control. Because here's what all of us want. Even if you've legitimately placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, all of us have this thing where we're prone to move in a direction where we want a religion where we can treat people the way we want and then have a system where we're cool with God. We want to treat people how we want, and then I'll just come and confess it, and me and God are good. And I, like I've, I attended again three out of four weeks. I'm in a community group. I've memorized stuff. I, I've like, I pray regularly, God, we're good. God, we're good. And we all want a religion where you can be good with God, and it doesn't matter what you do to the people who God loves. That you can hold on to anger and hold on to bitterness. And maybe it's not even that extreme. It's just that you don't even notice. We just ignore and Jesus is shifting it all around because all of us, here's how I put it in my notes, we want a faith that makes us accountable for how we treat God, but not how we treat people. And Jesus is basically going, that, that's paganism. That's vending machine God. It's this thing where we have these little buttons we push, and I'll take... I'll take attendance for $5 and then uh, reading and singing some songs and Hillsong United and da, 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 and then I can ignore everybody to my right and to my left. And it's ancient paganism. Paganism in the first century said this, that the gods don't really love you. Greek gods, the, the Roman gods, they, they don't really love you. So first century people had to do everything they could to try to get the favor of the gods so that they could be blessed. Their crops could be blessed. They could have kids, whatever the scenario was. And so if in the first century God doesn't care for me, then I'm not going to care for anybody else around me. And I'm telling you, in all religions and even in the Jesus movement, that insidious pagan thinking has found its way in. And if you think you can live like you can ignore and mistreat people, but still find a way to be okay with God, you are lying to yourself. It's not that God's going to love you or his grace is going to be any less or there's no condemnation in Christ. But if you want to know the health of this relationship, just look around at the table. 
And Jesus is going, you know what makes me angry? Here's what makes me angry. When people use the law of God to marginalize people who are made in the image of God. Because he was really clear at that moment, you're on the wrong side of God. That when you use the law of God to marginalize people made in the image of God, you are on the wrong side of God. And here's the thing about Jesus. He didn't get angry because he didn't get his way. He got angry because religion got in the way. But what kind of religion? Religion based on a system that tries to value God while ignoring what God values. A system of religion that tries to honor God while ignoring ultimately what God honors. And come on, isn't it true for some of you, if you're online or maybe you're podcasting us, maybe the thing that bumped you out of church that caused you to walk away was this kind of thinking where religious people who knew a lot and attended and were even maybe kind of the religious authorities could mistreat or ignore people or marginalize people and feel like that they were okay in their relationship with God? And come on, it's just like me with my kids. is like you can, you can do whatever you want, but if you mistreat my kids, it doesn't matter how many songs you write me, how many gift cards you give me, it doesn't make up for the fact that you mistreated my kids because you can't value me without valuing what I value. And nobody can value you without valuing what you ultimately value. And so Jesus says to all of us, I want you to follow me. This is what it means to follow me. All the law, all the rules, all the we should do that, we should attend. Those are incredible things, but those are a means to an end, and the game has changed. And if you want to know how you are in relationship with God, look at how you are in relationship with other people, because all of the Bible study, all the community groups, all the attending is so that you can worship and stir up to love God and do that by loving other people who are around you, to do good for those who can't and won't ever do anything good for you, because that's what Jesus did. And you probably know the story. Jesus left the dinner party, and ultimately the Pharisees were successful in doing what they wanted to do, and they had Jesus crucified. And I just think about this. There's no way they could have known. There's no way they could have known that in Jesus' death, it would be the ultimate example of the thing that they hated the most about him, his annoying habit of giving his life away. So it's why we're doing this thing called Serve Our City Operation Christmas Cheer this year. We've changed the name, but it's the same thing. We have a network called Serve Our City led by an incredible leader named Tanya Nichols. And we decided early on as a church that we wanted to partner with great organizations and not compete with them globally and locally. You saw some of our global partners, but this whole idea is we want to, during this time of year, focus collectively and corporately on what God has called us to do individually, but we don't want it to be a a one-time-a-year thing, but this is our way of getting the engines revving and to move you into what God has called us to do in our city. And so we have 16 local partners. We have a liaison within our churches for every single one of those organizations. That's how serious we take this. They're in constant communication. We have seven and global partners. And during this time of year, specifically, we focus a lot on our global partners. And basically, it centers around children at risk, housing, homelessness, education, foster care, and medical care. 
And so we want to do three things, and our goal more than anything else is just 100% participation where you can participate so that God would begin, my hope, my prayer is to move something in your heart. And what happens collectively would also do something individually in our hearts. So it's centered around three things. We want to give, we want to serve, and we want to love. If you have um, a card on your chair, and you should, or you have one nearby, or you're sitting on one, or if some reason you can't find one, you get one from an usher on the way out, but everything is on this card. So I'm not going to go through all of this. The date that you need to know that's most um, relevant and coming up the quickest is November the, I think, 19th, where we're giving away cake mixes. We're helping provide um, some food for those who are in need over the holidays through Gift of Hope. We're also providing toys for Gift of Hope by December the 3rd. Keep rolling here. We also are adopting 15 families through one of our partners, Varico Elementary and Angel Tree. All of the information will be in our lobbies. We'll update you. It's going to be on our website app. So all you have to do is get this card or go to our app, and you'll be clued in about when this stuff starts and how you can get involved. In Wesley Chapel, our other campus, we're doing a food drive until November the 12th, and we're also adopting two families through one of our partners, the local PTA. And we would love for you to be involved where you can be involved. For a lot of us, it's just over the next couple weeks when we give you the heads up, just to bring some stuff with you as you attend our services. The second part is serve. We would love for you to go to our website, which I'll show you in just a second. And our goal is collectively as a group of churches that we would serve 250 hours. And our heart is, as you go to some of these organizations that we're in contact with all year long, that God would begin to move something in your heart. Because we've been called to meet spiritual needs as a church and reach people in our community, but we have also been called to go serve our community for those who are marginalized, hurting, uh, underprivileged, and they just need physical help. And so we'd love for you to go to this website, get the needs, find out what you can do. It's always updated on there with all the different organizations. You could literally go and go, okay, do they need anything this next Thursday or next Wednesday? We'd love for you to do this as a community group, as a family, bring your kids, get involved. Afterwards, they'll send you an email. We'd love to know about your experience so we can also um, just kind of have a, a running tally of these hours. And so 250 hours. If you can give one or three or five or whatever it is over these next two months, which I know is crazy and there's holiday parties you don't want to go to, but you have to go to, to somehow make this a priority. And then the last thing is love. We went to our organizations and, and just basically asked the question, what do you need? And so we're going to give $10,000 away to our partner organizations. And this would be so easy for us this year to not do, honestly. Because we're right in the middle of a capital campaign and uh, that whole idea that we cannot stay here. And with all that God's doing here, we're trying to just kind of keep up. So it would be really easy to, you know what, we can't be generous in this way this year, so we'll, we'll catch it next year. But I, I just, you, you're not generous when, when you feel like everything is bankrolled. We have been called to make this the heart of what we do. This isn't a side ministry. This isn't a department. This is who we are. And so... Here's what I want to say. Here's all of the things that we're giving toward, um, many of them that you're familiar with in this area. You can go to the next slide. I don't have time to go through them all. Things like Teen Impact that are reaching 10,000 high school students in our county every year. Tampa Port Ministries, to our knowledge, the first ministry that is providing health care for seafarers in the world. Al Cocot is a part of that ministry. Um, those that are in Wesley Chapel, incredible organizations that we have vetted. And so all of that you can find out. And here's what I want to say. If you are a regular, systematic, 
automatic percentage priority giver, man, that is what it takes for us not to just be generous one time a year, but throughout the year. And can I just share my heart with you? I want to see us ramp up month over month to support these organizations because they don't just need help at Christmas. They need help all year long. And so we want to funnel as many volunteers, as many like whatever else they need and as much money as we possibly can as we meet the spiritual needs through our churches to give people hope and life in Jesus, but then we move out beyond the four walls and we get involved with people that in many cases nobody else is getting involved with. And so spontaneous generosity is great. If you want to give a gift towards Serve Our City, you can do that and just mark Serve Our City. But even more than that, because we didn't want to have too many competing things, is we have a huge need with our capital campaign. And so most of us have not given yet because we like to wait till the last minute. That goes to the end of December. But if you'd give a gift toward that, all of that really helps with where we want to go. And as we end the year and go into the new year, as many of you who would step up, like my family and many other families to go, man, when I get $10, I'm giving away a dollar. When I get $100, I'm giving away... um, you know, whatever, $100, $10, I, obviously I can't do simple math right now, $1,000, I'm giving away $100, just systematic percentage priority giving where there's a consistent cash flow. That is the thing that creates generosity on a month-to-month basis we move forward. So I just want to challenge you to worship God in this area because there is incredible impact. There's incredible impact globally among people you will never have a conversation with, and there is incredible impact in our city. So let's give, let's serve, let's love during this time of year, but man, a bunch of you, let's step up beyond just these couple months out of the year. And let's pray for these partners, give, serve, love. And I'm just gonna end with this. Why are we doing this? Just to summarize it all and put a bow on it, because our commitment to God is not measured by our commitment to God. I know that's how many of you grew up. I just want to shatter all of that. That is way too easy. Well, I read, I checked, I attended. No, that's, that's anybody can do. You just, all you have to do is be disciplined. You don't have to love anybody. Your commitment to God is measured by your commitment to the people that God loves, by how much you value who God values. And the most appropriate response to extravagant generosity toward you is to be expressed by your extravagant generosity to others. And I'm telling you, this is what we want our church to be known for, that people would look at us and think, we don't believe what they believe and some of it's weird, but dang it, those people are the most loving, generous people we've ever met. And I won't maybe sign on to what they believe, but dang it, I want my daughter to marry one of those Jesus followers. I want to work for one. I want to be in business with, with one. There is something about those people And can I just tell you in the first century, that is what turned the world upside down. I love the early church father, Tertullian, who said, it is our care for the helpless, talking about Jesus followers, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. In a culture where the gods simply demanded sacrifice, the Roman and Greek gods, it was the Jesus movement where Jesus came to planet Earth to go, no, there's a different paradigm. And now generosity is going to be the brand of this movement, and it's not optional. I've loved you, I want you to love others, and it is most powerfully expressed through no strings attached generosity to do for those who can't and won't do anything good for you. And so here's my final challenge. Let's make our following Jesus more than sermons and songs and reading plans. And let's move into what is much more uncomfortable. Because whenever we do, for the least of these, Jesus said it's, it's not like, it's you are doing it unto me.
Religion is not a system where you can be okay here and do whatever you want here. Religion and pure, undefiled religion, as James, the brother of Jesus, described it, is that you value what God values and you honor what God honors. So let's go. Let's do this. May God do something in our hearts that would maybe change us forever. Would you guys pray with me all over the house? Jesus, we thank you for your grace, for your love. Thank you for your gospel. I pray that you would move and work in an extraordinary way in us and through us. And Lord, we just thank you that you came to set the record straight and give us clarity and move in us in a way that um, we could never imagine. And I just pray for some of us, you would just begin to redefine what it means to follow you. Redefine what it means to really be in pursuit of what you want for our lives. And you would lead us into the beautiful but messy and uncomfortable place of looking to our right and our left and not simply just looking up. And Lord, I just pray that throughout our house that you would lead us to a place to be extraordinarily generous. And we would be generous out of simply a heart that we are loved by you. We want to be loved. We want to love other people around us. We want to value what you value. We want to honor what you honor. And so we just pray, God, in these coming weeks and coming months, you would do what only you can do in us corporately, but also in us individually. And so, God, we love you. We pray you'd work in hearts and lives this morning, even among those who maybe have never begun a relationship with you, that you would let them know that that is available to them. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.